Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good day to all my bed crimers. I hope you guys are doing well. To anyone new, thank you so much for checking out the channel. Do me a favor if after listening to or watching this video, you find you learned something or you enjoyed it, do me a favor, hit the like button and consider subscribing. Now let's dig in. As suspect Brian Koberger's father, Michael, cleans up the debris at the family home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, from the raid that saw his son arrested for the crime in Moscow, Idaho, so many questions still loom large. Before I launch into my primary topic for this video, I want to talk about some details relating to the crime of the four university students in Moscow, Idaho. Things I found very interesting to ponder. Let me state that I will be talking about suspect 28-year-old Brian Koberger, or BK, and he's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, but he's also the police's one and only suspect for this crime, at least so far. Anyone interested in this case, including the investigators working on it, is trying to figure out what, if any, connections BK had to the beautiful young women who called 1122 King Road their home away from home. When exactly did BK become aware of their presence in Moscow? And did he actually meet them, or were they simply pretty faces that caught his eye? Based on the probable cause affidavit, we know that BK's cell phone had been near their King Road residence at least 12 times prior to the crime. Eleven of those times were in the evening. Had BK, who's vegan, met Maddie Mogan or Zana Kurnodal at the Mad Greek restaurant in Moscow where they worked and where some vegan dishes are on the menu? Or did the 28-year-old criminology student cross paths with one or more of the young women at the Corner Club Bar in downtown Moscow, or somewhere else in town. There were rumors floating around that one of BK's sisters lived next door to the crime scene. I have yet to see proof of that, and I rather doubt it, as BK's two sisters are older than he is. We heard about the Seven Sirens Brewing Company in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where the owner claims BK would ask females at the establishment who they were with, where they lived, and what their work schedules were. BK is also alleged to have made creepy comments to female staff there. Could something similar have happened at the Mad Greek with Maddie or Zana? If so, did BK get rejected, and did that stir up rage that might have been simmering since high school when some girls are said to have bullied him, called him a creep, and thrown things at him. I then thought about that video of Kaylee and Maddie walking on Main Street in downtown Moscow to the grub truck early on Sunday, November 13th, 2022, with Jack S., a.k.a. Hoodie Guy. When the audio of that footage was enhanced, some people thought they heard Jack S. say something about one or both girls possibly insulting someone at the Corner Club bar where they'd spent from 10 p.m. on Saturday 
up until 1.30 a.m. on Sunday. In the affidavit for probable cause, the investigators mention a white sedan, which is consistent with Brian Koberger's white Elantra, traveling on Sunday, November 13th at 2.53 a.m. from Pullman, Washington, toward SR-270, which connects Pullman to Moscow. BK's cell phone was also using cellular resources that provide coverage southeast of his apartment, consistent with his phone leaving the abode and traveling south through Pullman, Washington. Both Koberger's white Elantra and his cell phone appeared to be traveling toward Moscow, Idaho, between 2.42 a.m. and 2.53 a.m. There's no mention of Koberger's car or his cell phone moving earlier on November 13th. Does that mean BK's car and his cell phone weren't in Moscow earlier than, say, 3 a.m.? Or did the investigators omit additional information about that? We know the affidavit doesn't contain all the evidence. Could BK have been in the Corner Club bar that night as well? I'm thinking it's not likely because the police, you'd think, would have run across his name earlier if that were the case. The photos of the bar that night that I've seen don't show a completely packed bar, nor do they appear to show BK there. But could he have been there? And could he have been insulted by the girls? And if not on that Sunday, could that same scenario have played out on an earlier weekend? I'm asking because it's unclear why the offender chose November 13th to commit the crime. Was that always the date he had earmarked for this brutal attack? Or did something happen on that Veterans Day weekend that tripped his trigger? Next, I want to talk about the brief period of 16 minutes during which this crime is said to have gone down. I was listening to a Nancy Grace show, and one of her guests, forensic expert Joseph Scott Morgan, was asked if he thought it was possible that the offender could really have harmed four people in the manner he did in a mere 16 minutes. Listen to what Morgan said. Scott, a lot has been made of to whether a quadruple homicide could be affected in 16 minutes. I think it was Jackie, wasn't it 16 minutes? Laura, wasn't it 16 minutes? We believe Absolutely. he was in the home. Okay, what about it, Joe yeah. Scott? Yeah, my thought is, is that the individual that perpetrated something like this would have to have a familiarity with the environment to move that quickly through this, because this is dirty, dirty work, and it is labor-intensive. I hate to put it in those terms, but it truly is. The individual would have to move with stealth. They would have to move with purpose. They would have to know where the victims are in order to facilitate this, and they'd have to be prepared showing up. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's possible. 16 minutes, certainly. Uh, I know somebody in the, certainly people in the military that are trained at this sort of thing could do it probably under that time. But, you know, you're talking about college kids. You're not talking about enemy combatants here. Uh, And so, yeah, and if he had familiarity with this environment, I think that's possible. In case you didn't hear that, Morgan said, yes, the crime could have been committed in just 16 minutes, but likely only if the offender had previous knowledge of the environment, meaning the interior of that house, and knew where to go to find his victims. If 16 minutes is correct, 
That indicates the offender didn't wander around haphazardly opening doors, and we know he didn't essay the victims either. Basically, he only had enough time to inflict harm on the four students and get out of there. Morgan mentioned the possibility that the offender might have known the layout of the King Road residence if he nested there prior to the crime, meaning he gained access to the home without the girls' knowledge and secretly hung out, maybe in their closets. That could have been at night, when they were sleeping, or at times when they were all away. How scary is that? I'll leave a link to the fascinating episode of The Nancy Grace Show in the description. It had me riveted for the entire 38 minutes. Moving on to the primary topic of this video, and that is, what do Brian Koberger's cell phone locations and the images of his white Elantra from various surveillance cameras say about where he was on Sunday, November 13th, after the crime? I previously talked about where his phone and car place Koberger leading up to the crime and during the crime and immediately after it, but I didn't talk about what Koberger's cell phone and car locations after the crime tell us about the rest of his Sunday, where he went and why he maybe went there. I'm going to begin at 5.30 a.m. And again, this is 5.30 a.m. Sunday, after the four students were harmed. At 5.30 a.m. on Sunday, BK's cell phone, whose number ends in 8458, was back on the AT&T network. Prior to that, at 2.47 a.m., Koberger's phone stopped reporting to the network, and it remained that way up until 4.48 a.m. This two-hour window where Koberger's phone is not on the network could mean that the phone was in an area without cellular service or coverage, or that the phone's connection to the network was disabled either by someone putting the phone in airplane mode or someone turning it off. At 4.48, Koberger's phone starts reporting again to the network. The phone is shown to be using cellular resources that provide coverage to Idaho State Highway 95 south of Moscow near Blaine, Idaho. By 5.30 a.m. Sunday, BK's phone appears to be back at his apartment in Pullman, Washington. From 5.30 a.m. to 9 a.m., if we are to go by his cell phone's location, Brian Koberger stays at his apartment. What was he doing for these three and a half hours? I think it's probable that if he is guilty, he was taking a shower and then maybe taking a nap unless the adrenaline was still pounding and he could not rest. It's not until 9 a.m. that Koberger's phone is in motion once again. It is accessing cellular resources that indicate it is leaving Koberger's apartment and traveling toward Moscow, Idaho. Then Koberger's phone is using cellular resources near the girls' home on King Road between 9.12 a.m. and 9.21 a.m. Thus, it would appear that for nine minutes, Koberger's phone, and likely Koberger too, were at the crime scene. If he was hoping to see yellow crime scene tape, 
flashing red lights and police vehicles, he must have been sadly disappointed. It would appear that the surviving roommates were maybe still sleeping at that point, and no one other than the offender and maybe Murphy the dog knew about the attack and the four students who were deceased at that point in two of the bedrooms. It would appear, thanks to his phone, that BK left the King Road residence at 9.21 a.m., and 11 minutes later, his phone is back in Pullman, Washington, at Koberger's apartment. For the next three hours, from 9.32 a.m. until sometime after noon, it appears that Koberger's cell phone remains at that apartment. Did BK, if he was the offender, was he exhausted at this point? Did he sleep during these three hours, or was he still too amped up to rest? The next movement of Koberger's cell phone, mentioned in the affidavit, is at 12.36 p.m. Sunday. At that time, the cell phone was using cellular resources consistent with it traveling from Pullman, Washington to Lewiston, Idaho, via U.S. Highway 195. Take a look at the route on the image I've provided from Google Maps. This route includes a stretch called the Lewiston Grade. From what I read, the Lewiston Grade refers to a curvy stretch of the highway that starts where U.S. 95 meets up with U.S. 195. This stretch includes a 2,000-foot-tall grade that occurs in a very short eight miles. Some describe this section of the highway as a difficult road with myriad twists and turns and dramatic switchbacks. According to the DangerousRoads.org website, this scary section of road is so notorious that it was the subject of the 1950s rock and roll song, Hot Rod Lincoln. It makes you wonder how Koberger's 2015 white Elantra would have handled the incredibly steep section of the drive. And how was BK feeling at this point? Was he tired? Was he amped up? Was he afraid and anxious? The affidavit states that at 12.36 p.m., Koberger's phone was using cellular resources that provide coverage to Kate's Cup of Joe coffee stand in Clarkston, Washington. Note that Clarkston, Washington is a 43-minute drive from Pullman, and surveillance footage from the U.S. chef store in Clarkston, which is adjacent to Kate's Cup of Joe, shows a white Elantra consistent with Koberger's vehicle drive past the coffee stand around that same time. Ten minutes later, at 12.46 p.m., Koberger's phone indicates that it's in the area of an Albertson's grocery store in Clarkston, and video from an exterior surveillance camera on that Albertson's shows none other than Brian Koberger exiting his white Elantra at 12.49 p.m. Cameras inside the Albertson's then capture Koberger walking through the store and purchasing what are described in the affidavit as unknown items. The video footage then captures Koberger leaving the store at 1.04 p.m. 
Note that the affidavit doesn't say if Koberger was observed in the footage wearing gloves or a COVID mask. I have so many questions about this 43-minute drive from Pullman to Clarkston, which, by the way, would have also required another long drive back from Clarkston to Pullman later on. That's a lot of road tripping for a guy who allegedly was awake from at least 2.42 a.m. Sunday and who maybe only got sporadic sleep. Why did Brian Koberger take a 43-minute drive from Pullman to Clarkston to shop? The Albertsons he was seen in is 33.6 miles from his apartment in Pullman. Surely there's a grocery store closer to that apartment. My thoughts are that if Koberger committed this crime, then he might have driven the 33.6 miles to Clarkston for any number of reasons. One, maybe he needed bandages, large or small, for unexpected wounds he sustained during the attacks, and perhaps he didn't want to risk being captured on surveillance cameras at any grocery stores in and around Pullman or in and around Moscow. Maybe he thought that detectives working on the case would automatically go to all the stores in the vicinity to look at their surveillance camera footage from Sunday, November 13th. Two, maybe he knew that he needed to put some distance between himself and some evidence from the crime, namely the black clothing he wore during the crime, which would likely at the very least have some red spatter on it, the van shoes he perhaps wore, the mask the offender was described by eyewitness Dylan M. as wearing, and the sharp-edged object used to harm the students. A unique geographical feature of the Clarkston area is the Snake River. The Snake River is 1,078 miles long and on average 16 feet 4 inches deep. It flows from Wyoming into Idaho, then into Oregon, and then toward Washington, where it ends. Could Koberger, if he is the perp, have ditched those damning items into the wild and frothy river? Would this be the most compelling reason for him to take a 43-minute drive to Clarkston and then another long ride back to Pullman on a day when you'd think he'd prefer to sleep, especially given all the locations where his cell phone pinged in the wee hours of Sunday morning. I think it's a distinct possibility. In the beginning, before we had a name and a face for the offender, I felt that whoever committed this crime would want to hang on to the sharp-edged object, but that was before Brian Koberger was named the suspect and charged with the crime. Knowing that Koberger studied criminology for many years makes me think that he is someone who would have known that the weapon used to harm the students needed to be as far away from him as possible and as far away from his apartment in Pullman as possible, preferably in a location where those items would be very difficult, if not impossible, to find. The sharp-edged object needed to be ditched as soon as possible after the crime, 
just in case the police came a-knockin' on Koberger's front door. Even if he believed he would not be caught, he would likely have had plans in place to mitigate the damage. He would never want investigators to find the clothes, the shoes, the mask, or that object, because that would make for a stronger case against him. The very long and often turbulent Snake River, which just happens to be right there near Clarkston, seems like a logical place to ditch these items. Of course, it's also possible that Koberger used that 2,500-mile road trip home with his father to stop at various dumpsters along the way to ditch evidence, much like a man named Fotis Doulis did after he allegedly did in his wife, Jennifer, and hid all the evidence, including Jennifer, who remains missing to this day. I'm assuming that the investigators working on this case likely know what Koberger purchased at that Albertsons in Clarkston, and if he bought items to clean and bandage wounds, I would imagine that that is yet another piece of circumstantial evidence to add to the already mounting pile against him. As for the sharp-edged object, I'm fearful the investigators won't find it, especially if it's in the Snake River or if it's somewhere in the Great Divide between Washington State and Pennsylvania. On that same Nancy Grace show I mentioned earlier, the panel discussed the sharp-edged object and said it's not like any other weapon when it comes to proving that a particular one was used in a crime. Grace described trying to find wounds on a victim that match a particular sharp-edged object as being like trying to find teeth marks in jello. She explained that because of the nature of skin and flesh, which is obviously stretchy when a person is alive, you won't necessarily see a wound that matches a particular sharp-edged object. Grace pointed out that unless there's victim DNA on a particular object, there isn't an easy way to prove it was the one used in the commission of the crime. But then I thought about that tan leather sheath found in victim Maddie Mogan's bedroom on her bed. I would imagine that if a sharp-edged object were to be found in Koberger's possession or at some location that his cell phone traveled to or where his white Elantra was seen in the days after the crime, and it is a K-bar that fits in that tan leather sheath, then I bet that could make for a very solid connection. According to Joseph Scott Morgan, it's also possible that pieces of that object used for this crime in Moscow broke off during the commission of the crime. Morgan said he's worked cases where a sharp-edged object was used on a victim, and he and other forensic analysts will take full-body x-rays of the victim And in those x-rays, they sometimes find fragments of metal from the object, even if they are tiny microscopic fragments. In a crime like this one, where you have four victims being done in by the same object, the structural integrity of the object might lessen as the offender moves from victim to victim. 
Morgan said it's not unusual for the tip of a sharp-edged object to break off during an attack, especially if that object hits bone along the way. In this case, we have an offender who, per the coroner, used the same object on the four victims. Thus, it seems like a distinct possibility that such a fragment could have been left behind in one or more of the victims. Let's hope the coroner took full-body x-rays of each person. Morgan further explained that experts can then do metallurgy tests on these metal fragments, find out their exact element composition, and then match the fragments to whatever sharp-edged object is believed to have been used in the crime. Apparently, manufacturers use unique blends of elements, as in a recipe, to forge molten metal into their sharp objects. Okay, well, that was a lot. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. If so, if you enjoyed this, smash that like button and subscribe to my channel. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.